0: Genesis chapter 6, the story of Noah and the flood. It's it's a pretty disturbing story. Sometimes I get surprised that we tell the story to children. (laughs) It's like, wow, there's a lot in the Bible that we tell children that are just pretty serious stuff. So uh, it's a story of um, all life being uh, judged and wiped out through a flood and how one family uh, builds the ark to preserve life and God's will through creation continues. Uh, the amount of space devoted to this is pretty surprising. Um, it's three chapters. Uh, you know, all of creation was like one chapter, and uh, the fall of mankind was like half a chapter. This, this, this three chapters. So we're obviously not going to be able to read through all of it, but, but we're going to tackle this issue uh, of judgment. Judgment. Um, there's a story about the, the Mona Lisa, I think it is, and I don't know if this really happened or if it's one of these preacher stories, but um, it's uh, like somebody stands before the Mona Lisa and, and look at it and go, nah, I don't care so much about this painting. And then the, um, the docent standing next to the painting says, oh, uh, sir, the artistic merit of this painting has been established long ago. When you stand before this work of art, you don't judge it, it judges you. Right? Uh, so I, I don't know what your views are about art, but um, because I think a lot of it is like, eh, you know, um, I took art appreciation in college. Um, I don't recommend it if you have sleep issues, because they would always turn off the light to, to show the slides, right? These were back when we had Kodak carousels, and that's what the, and I realized this is one class you cannot make up uh, by studying for it out of class, because you have to look at the artwork, and I fell asleep, so I had to drop it. But that story still, still kind of, like, you, you get what, 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 it, what it's trying to say. In other words, if you're standing before the Mona Lisa and you're like, what's the big deal? You sort of have to say, okay, so what am I missing? Right? Like, what am I, that, that's, that, that's what that means. Like, no, it judges you. I think there's something about scripture that that's applicable to throughout, particularly this kind of story, particularly today. Because I think we live in an era where, like, personal entitlement and my rights and and like, who says, and all of this is really in the air. And so the idea of judgment, like, so, like, you, you look, at the, look, look at the word judge or judgment. And if I ask you to use it in a sentence, like, the sentences that would come up are probably pretty negative. Like, who are you to judge? Or, oh, you're so judgmental. Um, they're probably on the negative side. Except if you're an oppressed person. Then, then the judge is your only hope you know, in some way. So depending on the context, right? So I want, I want to tackle this and I want you to kind of study your own reaction to the idea that how dare God judge all of mankind? Like, that, is, that, is that what's sort of surging up? And I want you to think about that. Um, and, uh, and what does it mean to be God? Like, what does it mean that we have a God who is intimately involved with humanity? Not, not, not the, the deist God who wound up the world and walked away, but but somebody who... Cares about you more than mom does. Who, who? Every hair on on your head are numbered. Before a word is on my lips, O oh Lord, you know it completely. Like we have a God that is that involved, and yet utterly holy. And here we are, constantly um, thinking corrupt thoughts and deceitful. So through and through, and you know, envying our our best friends and wishing for their downfall in our in our like. Slightly below average, but only slightly below average moments. So how, how does God interact with that kind of world? Um, those are some of the thoughts that, that lie behind this story. Uh, so I've selected some passages, so, so let's look at it together. Genesis chapter 6. Uh, When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, a lot of mystery in these first couple of verses uh, that describes the pre-flood era. Verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then there's the, the whole description of the building of the ark, which, by the way, the dimensions of which, like we don't know how, to, how, how big a cubit is. People guess that it's from, you know, uh, elbow to, to tip of the fingers. Like, that's a guess. Uh, but the ratios are preserved, and the ratios. Conform to modern naval architecture, like something like 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 three to seven ratio, like for seaworthiness. So there's a lot here that I want to get into, which which I won't, uh, and then we'll skip over to chapter seven. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and the waters prevailed on the earth hundred and fifty days. And then we pick up when uh, it's all over. Uh, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as i have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease yeah so serious topic today uh, about god's right to judge about this whole topic of judgment um and and we, we we pick up here um and the Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Uh, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil uh, continually. Um, so, this, this story, if you actually imagine it, like if, if you sort of zoom out and you just focus on like two animals and, you know, the ark with the giraffe neck sticking out the window. Um, you know that's one picture but really what happened right this 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 terrible picture of waters rising filling up living rooms and kitchens people fighting for the last piece of dry land it's a terrible story and um, and what like what happened Um, well let's review God uh, created the heavens and the earth and he created order Uh, you you remember from Genesis chapter one part of his creational activity, separation, he's separated and he creates boundaries. And within his bounded realms, there is flourishing and abundance and life uh, teeming with life. Um, part of that, that boundary making was separating the waters above and the waters below, creating the expanse in between. And now this goodness of creation is about to go terribly wrong, terribly wrong as, as creation starts to sort of break down I pointed out throughout our study up to this point how sin and creation aren't so separate. Um, we first saw it in, in Adam. When Adam sinned and, and rejected God, what happens? Nature takes over his body. Like it, it seemed like Adam's relationship with nature was, was very uh, kind of commanding. But after the fall, what's the punishment? Dust you are, to dust you shall return. Like second law, the law of thermodynamics happens to man's body. And he is helpless before that decaying. Um, so, so creation and sin. Like sin causing creational breakdown. That's the pattern that we already saw in subtle ways. Um, and then seven generations after Adam, we see civilization advancing, but along with it, a lot of violence, a lot of corruption as Lamech boasts of his murders. Not only does he murder... The value system is so, so strange that that kind of violence and um, ruthlessness is actually celebrated so that he can boast. And you see the pattern of God's creational boundaries, moral and spiritual boundaries, being transgressed and being erased. And then the, the destruction that, that, that reeks, starting to inundate human life and then we get to this verse chapter uh, 6 verse 5 the lord saw that the wickedness of men's uh, wickedness of men was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time <laughs> like wow what what a, what a what a compact sentence that piles it on emphasizing the, the level of evil. I don't know if you can imagine this level of evil. Um, I was, um, you, you probably don't know the, the, the ethnic cleansings that happened in Serbia and Croatia and Bosnia. That was, that was about as evil as it got, as neighbor rose against neighbor. The, the slaughter in Rwanda in, in a few days. In a few days, I think something like 20% of the population slaughtered by their neighbors, not an enemy occupying force. Um, and, and you take that, and what's, what's being described here, that, that not only external acts, but every intention, like every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So, so that's, that's a pretty horrific picture. That's how bad it had become. And so the question arises then, Like, when does life become unlivable? When, when does it get to a point where it would be cruel to just simply exist in this world, that it would be a mercy for judgment to come? At what point does the order and beauty of God's intended cre- creation Uh, and and, and how we are to relate becomes so twisted that God must judge. Well, the Bible reports God's response, and God's response is, um, my spirit will not abide in man forever. Now, this word abide, it's it's sort of a controversial translation. Um, Two other translations, the NIV and the NASB, renders this word strive or struggle, NIV says contend. Uh, the NASB says strive. So, so this word dwelling with and striving and contending, like it's that kind of uh, word. And the idea of God sort of striving with men, contending with man, uh, and then almost seemingly exhausted. Like it's, it's, it's richly ironic that, that man can tire out God. That, that God, who is holy and omnipotent, can deal with men and experience that um, as contending, as striving. And this expression, uh, I will not strive with men forever. And then it says, The Lord regret it. And again, that's an odd expression that God should regret anything. The Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and he grieved him. It grieved him to his heart. Um, any picture of God aloof and distant and unaffected by man, that is a, that is a Greco-Roman philosophical idea that, that perfection can't be perturbed, that, that God is not affected. No, God is love and love is extremely vulnerable. Right? Like, like your parents know this. You know this as soon as you have a child. Like the world can hurt you in many ways. But once you have a child, it can hurt you in infinitely more ways. Like way more intensely. Because to love means to be very, very open to wounding. And here you have the picture of the God of the universe being grieved. It grieved him to his heart. This is the message of the flood. That God is affected. That human wickedness impacts God. That God is touched by man's sins. And that, that sin matters to him. Sin matters to him. What does, it, what does it mean that sin matters to him? That means you matter to him. Like if you can do A or B and, and it doesn't matter to God. Right? Like eh, it doesn't matter. That means you don't matter. No, your choices. Your choices matter in the highest courts of heaven. Like, that's part of what the story means. C.S. Lewis says this You know, the Bible records a lot of reactions from God toward man love, joy, exulting, anger, punishment, but never indifference. Never indifference. I think rebellious teenagers often want indifference because what do they say? rebellious teenagers cry what is their anthem i know you guys are a bunch of teenagers in here because until you're 19 you're still a teen right although although we kind of tend to not think of 18 and 19 year olds as teenagers but when you're a teenager what do you say to parents and authority figures okay one two three nice and loud one two three That's that's not fair okay i wasn't expecting that yeah, so you're not very rebellious because you're actually kind of appealing to some justice um, what, what, what else it's a lot of you, I guess, I guess you don't know you're just never rebellious you're just goody two shoes all your life I don't care leave me alone, yeah yeah. get off my back, leave me alone leave me alone, leave me alone and it's almost like it's almost like humanity says to God like, leave me alone and they get their wish And when you say, leave me alone, or you like really argue with mom, does there ever come a point where mom says something really scary? Okay. (laughs) Why don't you talk to your neighbor about what it is that your mom says that makes you feel like, oh... Alright. How many of you have that word? To me, it's one word. Fine. Oh yeah, that's the word I was thinking about. Fine. Have it your way. You know, I'll leave you alone in other words. Right? Like, why can't I go? Like, no. All the other kids are there. No. Then afterwards, you sense a different look on your mom's face. A look of fatigue, a look of resignation, maybe defeat, maybe hurt. And she says, okay, fine. Do what you want. And she walks out. And you're like, oh gosh, what have I done? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And like, I don't think you go, yes, I got my way. You know, like you might actually take that as some kind of grudging permission and walk out the door chastened and a little bit kind of, right? And and, and the relationship maybe kind of shifts a little bit. Or maybe you say to yourself, oh man, next time I better not push it this far, right? Well, guess what the Bible says judgment is? It's God letting go. It's not a furious God gleefully inflicting pain nor a cold and disgusted God walking away. It's, it's letting go. Three times in the book of Romans Apostle Paul says and God gave them up to a depraved mind. God gave them up to their rebellion. God gave them over to what they wanted. And in some ways the flood is God holding back the waters of destruction it's sort of the cancellation of the second day of creation. When God separates the waters from uh, below and the waters from, uh, from above the expanse and, and, and they touch and a critical mass of sin causes some kind of critical mass on, in nature to erupt. The boundaries get revoked. So again, the, the Bible describes man not as isolated from creation because we are connected to the God of creation. I think it's one of the most immature things in life to say, um, like, don't mind me. I don't want to bother anybody, and, and you won't bother me. Like, it's a victimless crime. Like, no, there's, that's, I think, one of the most clueless and false things to say, because you are connected. Mom says, come down for dinner. Teenage boy says, I'm not hungry. So, well, it's dinner time. Come down. Why are you making a big deal out of it? I'm not hungry. I'm not saying nobody else should eat. Y'all eat. I'm not hungry. You know? And 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 the parents feel like, wait, like if you won't come down to dinner. There's, there's a way in which you're eroding our family. There's a way in which you're sort of weakening the bonds. And, and how do you explain to the sociopathic being? Like if you're not at the dining table, you're, you're eroding this precious unit that protected you and gave you life. If you do that to me, I'll explain this to you. You know, most parents are just like, ugh. I'm not bothering anybody. There's no such thing. We're all vitally connected because we're all connected to God the Creator. So, when we sin, creation rebels. Thorns start growing. The blood cries out from the ground in protest against uh, Cain's murder of Abel. And finally, here, when every inclination of the intention of the heart and thought is only evil all the time, then creation itself is an upheaval. This is the power of sin. This is the destructive nature of sin. We live in a universe attended to by a holy God. And if you tarnish the moral fabric of the universe at a certain point, creation itself is an upheaval. This is what is at stake in human disobedience and human obedience. In other words, this text is telling us that we are capable of going too far. We are capable of cutting ourselves off from the very grace that holds back the powers of destruction. That you and I are capable of crossing boundaries to such an extent that the boundaries just become too porous to hold back the waters of destruction. We think we control our lives, like we can contain the dark things swirling around inside of us. That I got it under control, you know, I, I got this. And you, and, and you, you think that, that you can toy with sin until suddenly you find that the protective boundaries are gone and the whole toxic surge come pouring into your life. Young people say, it's my life, I don't need protection, I don't need other people, I don't need all this caution. God's grace, God's mercy, that's nice, but I don't really need it. I don't need to keep to God's silly boundaries and laws. And then we disrespect those boundaries and we transgress them. And one day we may discover that what the ancient boundaries held back were powerful forces of destruction that are now unleashed upon your life. When is it that something crosses over into addiction? What's addiction? it's a person no longer doing something but the something doing to you like the thing that you're doing comes alive and engulfs you when does that happen yeah it's hard to know when that happens hard to know when the boundaries just crumble it's hard to know but there's a point well we know where it starts it starts with the first try and then it continues on with toying with it and denial, until well, until you're enslaved. Could it be that one day the boundaries we rebel against and try so hard to erase, actually vanish, and we return to that primordial chaos. Is that so strange? Well, the story says, in graphic terms, this is what happens, that God strives with you. He has compassion. He waits. But in the end, the end must be allowed. The child playing at chess, you know, you keep taking back your moves. Play with uncle. Uncle so much better. Like, oh, no, no, I take that back. I take that back. You keep protesting. You weren't thinking, I want to take that move back. Eventually, the game has to come to an end. Uncle says, I got to eat dinner. (laughs) Boom, 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 boom. Done. Game is over. Eventually, the end must come. The final accounting will have to happen. We're all going to die and face judgment. Like, that's just real. We're all going to die. Yeah, these people died in a flood, but we all die. The end must come. And God's loving kindness, His striving with men, is described most often in the Bible as long-suffering. Long-suffering. He has compassion, He waits, but His kindness is so that we can Repent. Bible warns, let no one take God for a fool and think that he will forever be kind, forever be tolerant. is simply too spineless to judge wickedness. What a terrible world that would be. What an what a absurd universe that would be. Even though we're sinners, we get so incensed at wickedness. And, and to, to think that the universe is not attended to by a righteous judge who will make final accounting, would be a terrible, terrible worldview. No, we are we are creatures. He is the Creator. He's holy. We're sinful. And His kindness extended to us so that we can repent. But ultimately, the claims of justice, the cry of Abel's blood must be answered and so Genesis 6 says when it gets to to this level a critical mass of sin is reached then God lets go and all hell breaks loose but the picture is not just about judgment there's a pattern, I don't know if you've noticed I've pointed out here and there throughout our study, there's a pattern of God doing two things like he, he, he can't you can't trick God. Like, he, you, you can't, you can't p- pull a wool over his, his eyes, but he's also not all judge. Adam sins, they are banished. Dust you are, dust you shall return. And then, before they go out, God slaughters an animal and clothes Adam and Eve in garments of skin to replace their absurd fig leaf covering. Judgment, a note of grace. Cain murders Abel. God says, don't anybody murder Cain. Puts a mark of protection on him. And so it is here. God says, I will not contend with men forever. I will blot out all creation. But Noah found favor with God. And God meticulously prepares Noah to preserve life and to continue forward with men. It's the same pattern. So after it's all over, it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. And then, and then God, who in his heart had grieved that he had made man, we find him grieving again. When the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of men." For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. One of the commentators commenting on this passage says, it's interesting, everything changes except man. It says, intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And yet God says, never again, never again. Even though humanity remains crooked and corrupt, God says, never again. In other words, we see here the setting up of a tension, which will resolve only on the cross. God who must judge. God who says, there's still evil. I'm still grieved by it. But I'm not going to send judgment. How does that resolve? And, and we have an anticipation of the cross that God will suffer, that, that God will bear, put up with. God will judge our sins to be sure. But He Himself will do it in a way that fulfills the never again. How does this resolve? It's held in tension throughout the Scripture. You know, the God who continues with the Israelites even though like they're a stiff-necked people. Right? Like God's faithful covenantal uh, commitment to His people. The pattern of God exercising judgment uncompromising, never negotiating away his character, his holiness, or his glory, and yet continuing to move into the future with the people who remain sinful. How is this going to happen? Like, will God wipe out mankind again? Or will he, like, chill out? Will he mellow? You know, wink, wink, you know, like, dilute away his holiness and justice? It all resolves in the cross where God's justice is fully upheld and His compassion fully expressed. We are preserved because the wrath for sin is poured out on the cross of Jesus. And we receive His covering. He becomes our ark. And God is that much more glorious, so just, so holy, so loving. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Um, I take it that there's a wide range here, right? Those who, man, this is music to your ears. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir about the gospel. There's some of you, you grew up in the church. You sort of faintly remember the Noah story. Like you sort of know what the cross is, it's never become personal for you. Some of you, you're unchurched. Um, Maybe you're kind of on the atheist agnostic spectrum. I don't know where you are. But how do you become Christian? You know, they say it's a gift, right? It's a gift. It's freely available. It's if you understand this to capture reality. Wait, I didn't create myself. The universe didn't exist forever. God brought me into existence. I've never really thought about that. Or if you have, you never really made that relevant. Like Think about that. That is the most relevant thing imaginable. That I have a creator, that he made me, that I owe every cell in my body to my creator? How do I relate to him? Who, what's he like? He is holy. He is not distant. He is intimately acquainted with your ways. And he is grieved by sin. And though he has every right to judge... He says, never again. And on Calvary, on that hill when Jesus died on the cross, you find Noah's flood story themes reemerge. God grieved. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Chaos, darkness, abandonment. These themes reemerge. And there it is, God's judgment, God's compassion, and you look to the cross and you say, that's me. I am creature who rebelled. I see myself in Adam and Eve. I see myself in Cain. I see myself in Lamech. I see myself in the generation of Noah. If you would offer me that protection, if you would offer me your righteousness, I want to receive it. It's that simple. You know, I conduct a lot of Weddings. You know, and uh, it's really neat. I don't know if you if you watch those like um, like Renaissance era movies with like people fencing and, and like bows and stuff. And what happens? Like always, the, the, the woman is about to get married to the wrong guy, right? Like the evil prince or something, the baron. Uh, and and then and then they're, they're, like it's it's gonna happen. The suspense is oh no, it's gonna happen, and the bishop. You know, he, he sits there and he goes, May wage, right? And, um, and when do you have to shoot the bishop? The archers who are hiding in the rafters of the cathedral have to shoot the bishop in the back so that he can't say, I pronounce you. Like before the, I pro- and then And then you, you swoop down and, and take away uh, the young maiden to the, the rightful, you know, like. Um, maybe you've never seen this movie. So I remember feeling a little tingling behind my back, you know, if I pronounce you, you know. um, (laughs) And it's magical because as soon as I say those words, it happens. It's weird. You know, something as forever, something as solid as a marriage. just happens. Because the parties say, "I do," in front of witnesses." And it's, there's no magic in the pastor saying, "I pronounce you, you know, husband and wife." Like there's no magic in that. But you, you, you get that. How do you become Christian? You say, "Well, given all of that, I want to receive that, because I am that sinner. who needs the covering of the blood of Jesus. And then you learn how to be a good husband and how to be a, a good wife and how to be a mom like for the next 60 years. Right? Don't think like "Oh, well, I don't know this and I don't know this and I don't know if I can this and you know like I'm addicted to whatever and I don't know if like I'll be good enough to be a Christian. Of course you're not going to be a good enough cr- Christian. Like that's not how it works. It works because you ju- you're just a good sinner. If you could do it, then why did Jesus die? So people think like, oh, I'm going to be a bad Christian. Of course, that's the only kind there is. (laughs) That's why we come to the cross again and again. And so that's why we sing his praises again and again. It's really simple. And extremely rich. So look, if you haven't made that decision, if you if you but but you're there and you're just like waiting for something to happen, what needs to happen is the ball's in your court. Right? God's been speaking to you. So if there's anybody in the room, you know, like you've never made that clear, or you like you sort of did in sixth grade, but you don't know if it counts. You know, just make it clear. Make it clear. You know, at the end of the service, we're going to give you an opportunity to just pray that prayer. Uh, take advantage of that. Yeah, there isn't a degree you need to uh, get or some exam you need to pass. It's a, it's a moment. I do. Like, that's, that's what it is. Um, I want to close with this. Um, an applicational challenge for every Christian. I named my second son Noah because of because of this text. Ah, uh, think of this man going up the mountain. Scholars think they went up the, up the mountain because that's where the timber is, and it's not day in and day out. It's it's years building this. It's crazy. It's odd. And Jesus said in Luke 17, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. While the whole world pursues its, its agenda. Here's Noah. So odd. What a, what a crazy and odd picture this old saint must have seemed. I think we need that kind of embracing of the oddness among Christians. Why is he doing something so odd? Because he knows something that people of his generation don't know and won't hear. the book of Jude says Noah preached. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They wouldn't receive it. What is the message? What is the secret information that Noah got from God? that judgment is coming. But is that such an esoteric piece of knowledge? Judgment is coming for us all. So if you know this, if you know that every, like life is short, death is certain, eternity is long, like if you know this, then you're Noah. So the question is, where's your ark? Like should your life be exactly the same as the world? planting and harvesting, buying and selling, marrying and being given in marriage? Or, should your life be about investing your life in creating an ark that will be the salvation of souls? That will preserve people from the judgment to come. Where's your ark? Okay, so that's all I have um, let's pray together um, I want to I want to lead you to just just pray in response um, you can use this time to just think just think uh, just be thankful that somehow uh, you were rescued I remember when I was a teenager I know I've mentioned a couple of times what kind of delinquent teenager I was and it was like the floodwaters of my own corruption and nihilism and anchorlessness. And I just felt like the gospel came to me like the ark and saved me. Um, so maybe some of you just want to spend this time thanking God. But I, but, but I just want to give you that opportunity uh, to acknowledge God as the rightful judge and Jesus, the cross of Jesus, as, as that vehicle that God's providing for you. And if you've never made that decision, Please pray, Lord, you're my creator. You're the rightful king over my life. I'm a sinner who's taken control over my life as if it's my life, and it isn't. And I now want to give it back to you and receive your righteousness that you bled on the cross to give me. So, yeah, so let's spend one minute just responding in prayer. So let's pray.